<clears throat> yeah, so uh, the the genesis of the Wild Wild West movie. Um, I don't know if you ever... So, you know Tim Burton. Yeah. The director. He, he directed, like, uh, the 1988 Michael Keaton Batman movie, you know, did The Nightmare Before Christmas, all the Johnny Depp movies. Mm-hmm. Um, he was... Uh, after the great success of his Batman franchise, he was hired to make the Superman movie starring Nicolas Cage as Superman. And they made quite a bit of this movie. Um, they got very far into production. A lot of the CGI was developed. A lot of technology was specifically developed for this film that never saw the light of day. Like Nicolas Cage was going to be like a uh, sort of... Uh, this new version of Superman where he had like long hair and kind of like a beard and he was real sort of brooding and, uh, you know, this not, not necessarily like a, this happy go lucky type of Clark Kent that we were always, mm-hmm. uh, was he supposed to getting. be like an older and Superman? Yeah. It, well, it's, it was going to okay. go through his whole life. So there was like young versions of Nicholas Cage, old versions huh. of Nicholas Cage, different like physique changes that he went through in the movie and stuff like that. But the primary villain of the movie hit the big boss fight was going to be this huge mechanized spider thing, this steampunk mechanized spider thing that was going to like fight Metropolis. And then um, the thing was going to fight Superman in the big boss battle. So like uh, they they started getting, uh, you know, oh, my God, this thing is going to be so over budget that the uh, the. The film center like closed down, shut down the Tim Burton movie. And the guy who was the primary producer of it was like, well, I mean, I guess technically anything we came up with for Superman is kind of my property. (laughs) So in like less than a month, he just repackaged a lot of the stuff that was for the Superman movie into the Wild Wild West movie. And so that's why there's a big uh, steampunk mechanical spider that they have to fight in the in the desert and all that stuff that that is just direct cropped things that were for the Superman movie that had already been spent and they just had to figure out another vehicle to put them in so that the budget wouldn't be wasted. <laughs> so he was like producing that movie as well. No, the, the wild wild west movie was the saving of the over expenditure of trying to make That's the so Superman weird. movie with Tim Burton. The producer kept all the intellectual property, then quickly repackaged it and rolled it into this other vehicle that they thought they could sell to Hollywood and people real fast. And it made a lot of money. It did. Yeah. <laughs> it had a, they had Burger King toys. I remember. Yeah. Cause I, I remember getting the sunglasses. <laughs> they were like those tiny, <laughs> ridiculous, like late nineties, circular sunglasses well thank you you know there's a there's a great document i i can't remember if it's on showtime or hbo it's called killing superman and it's about the entire making of the film and um like it shows all of the nicholas cage like acting in front of a green screen like he's flying like all the stuff that was kind of prepared for the movie that was in the can they just never like finished it out or edited it all together and put the right cgi behind it and stuff it's really weird because, <laughs> like, there's another universe where there's an entire, like, 10-part uh, movie series of Nicolas Cage as Superman, and he's, like, this even bigger movie star just because everyone knows him as Superman, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's really weird that they came out with a odd prequel, too, Waiting for Superman a few years later. <laughs> 
Maybe. What's never ending to find that beginning that came before everything? Like kids with decoders discover the Welcome to 2022. Yeah, we didn't we didn't die on New Year's Eve, so that was that was good. Mm-hmm. I keep writing 1998 on my checks. I know it's so hard, so hard to get into the get, get into the, the new century. We're uh, we're a quarter of we're almost a quarter of the way into the century, and I I still can't write the right date <laughs> on my check. Not a whole lot of good news coming out already although i saw um the james webb space telescope has already completed its mission another potato shaped planet was found <laughs> yeah so there you go <laughs> hey it didn't blow up we <clears throat> talked about it two weeks ago that um uh, you know we were going to come back and have a big funeral episode because we were pretty sure it was going to blow up on launch and it didn't and then there weren't any real major malfunctions with any of the deployment of the science and technology instruments on the thing once it got out past the moon. So um, really good job. And uh, it was the Ariane rocket that uh, the European Space Agency you know, developed that launched it into space. It was so efficient on giving it its ride to L2 that it saved over half of the fuel that they had expected to use. So now instead of being on a 10-year deployment mission, it's got enough fuel to be like on a 22-year deployment mission and stay in L2 by itself for like 22 years now. That's crazy. Um, is it, what is it a sign of that I was like expecting it to explode or have major problems? You know, is it just I think current it's, day? Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, when, when, well, you were born in 1990, but yes. when when you're born, at least most of us millennials, you know, all we've ever seen is like pain and tragedy. Like no, <laughs> nothing ever works out. You know, there's there's always been a lot of hope, and then just to just to a lot of building us up just to bring us down. Uh-huh. So <laughs> we we've all you know earned a, a very proper level of cynicism towards any type of eventuality. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I see. <laughs> Uh, my sister is, uh, she was born in 95, so depending on which... Uh, so she missed the whole first Gulf War. She missed the whole first housing <laughs> crisis in the 80s, Boy, the whole savings and loan scandal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, she was there for Lewinsky, though, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, she, just in time. She was like yeah, three. Uh, and Diana, so that was... a. Uh, yeah. <laughs> her toddler years were very traumatic <laughs> um but uh so she's you know depending on who you ask either one of the youngest millennials or like one of the earliest gen z or whatever but i mean obviously she has a different personality than me 
but I don't think she has any interest in like that kind of stuff. But she was still in high school. Like I, I went to college right as the economy was collapsing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I at least got to see like, okay, well, everyone's saying there's like no job market anymore. It's like what it so I I spent four years of like, what am I even doing? Like, like what what it what possibilities are there? Um, whereas she was you know, uh, learning algebra, so I think <laughs> I at least was able to glom on to your your side of the generation. Yeah. Despair. <laughs> yeah. And, and like you were young, but you did already live through one economic crash before the housing crash in 2007. Like you did get the dot com crash, but you just were like eight. Right. So you were, you're probably oblivious to the things that were going on around you. I was in did high school during the. Yeah. I was in high school during the dot com crash. And then I was in, it was after college. Nikki and I were married when the housing bubble burst in 2007 and our house we lost our house and everything so that was fun yeah i i mean sorry (laughs) the uh the thing that i also don't understand with housing because we rent like and we have no interest in owning anything like good californians because well, you can't afford to right. buy a place like <laughs> unless you exactly had three generations living here you can't buy a house oh my parents um, my parents bought this place in west covina back in 1945 it was only thirty thousand dollars <laughs> yeah 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 i mean it's crazy though because like a lot of places in um you know there's families that have multiple properties that have lived here for a long time but they've got like a place in say compton or something but if you, you know, obviously people have heard of Compton, but if you drive through there, it's pretty, like, a lot of the places are pretty run down. Mm-hmm. But there's no point in building it up because it's just the property value that keeps going up. Yeah, it's like, the land. It has yeah, nothing the to land do with is, the sticks on the land. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, people kind of either live in these houses or just, like, visit to make sure stuff isn't, you know, you don't have a pipe burst or whatever. Um because of all, all those freezing temperatures in California that burst all the pipes. We have earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. I guess, you know, earthquake could shake the ground and cause pipe to burst. We have earthquakes, <laughs> and then we also have really old infrastructure. So, come on, give me... Yeah, let me, true. Let me pretend. <laughs> um, but the rent prices go up every year just an insane amount like our we got real lucky with the unit that we currently live in because we got it at the bottom of the barrel during covid like last year or two years ago and then then um whenever we renewed our lease because you know you can only do 12 to 14 months max um they were like well you know the actual value should be much higher, but we'll not do it. We'll only go up like three hundred dollars or something. Nice. They're see, they're nice. They're treating you nice. Yeah. Orange County has no rent cap, like rent increase cap. Uh LA at least has something. But... Right. It's a free market, Eric. <laughs> well, great. Um uh, <laughs> but I don't understand because like the current 
the other units like a studio we live in like a two-bedroom one and a studio here is now like three hundred dollars more expensive than where we live i think or maybe a hundred dollars more yeah like the current the current value mm-hmm. of, or what we're paying which is nuts like how are you supposed to live anywhere obviously i don't make like a ton of money so maybe if we were both you know investment bankers then we yeah. would not care but it i mean that's the kind of thing that's like who do you want like making up your community well and i think that you know on on like to seriously talk about it like it's got to be a multitude of factors one like you've had two years of basically not having much stuff built not much new capacity built at all and prior to the pandemic everything was already not being built up enough to keep to keep the capacity high enough to keep the rents lower across the board for everybody yeah. so you're you're you sort of exacerbated an already terrible scenario when it came to like providing enough capacity for for the marketplace and so and the the scarcity issue of uh, of units is just going to drive the prices up not down um, yeah and if there's no like policy for affordable housing then there's no you know incentive for anyone who is a landlord to you offer that type of thing other their only incentive is to play the rate hike game and use scarcity as a way to increase their margins so i, I don't mean, know there's... like there's not there it's like you 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 can't just snap your fingers and magically have like thousands of new units appear on the market and i it's like an entire like we talk about a lot like things have been done away for a certain amount of years 30 or 40 years now and we're seeing the very bad downstream consequences of things being done a certain way for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to actually change the whole way the thing is done. And a lot of the things that people propose are kind of like band-aids to these types of solutions. Like there was the great idea in San Francisco, you know, of we've got all these cruise ships that we're not using because of the pandemic. Why don't we just uh, make those low low cost housing <laughs> or right, we yeah. could just put all the homeless on a cruise ship and just leave them in the bay <laughs> they don't need windows <laughs> like you cut these are the ideas that happen <laughs> right right <laughs> people think well these are great ideas to solve this problem <laughs> when, yeah when you've lived in like a dystopian nightmare for 40 years <laughs> and you're seeing all the side effects of it yeah there's there's an account i follow that um it's called Invisible People. Uh, I follow like the actual guy who runs it, but it's a homeless. I don't know what to describe it. I guess you could say advocacy. The guy himself used to be homeless, and now he makes like a lot of videos and stuff. It's interviews with homeless people because if you've ever worked in homeless advocacy, a lot of it is just kind of outreach, not really letting homeless people tell their side of the story right right or not caring what the homeless people have to say um and he like shared a photo recently of las vegas's like homeless um i don't know camp kind of thing that they built and it's just an outdoor like they have empty hotel rooms (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
But they had they built an didn't build it. They just put a cover over a parking lot and have like yoga mats on the ground for people to sleep like a foot from each other. Just a giant grid of like <laughs> 200, you know, I, not even beds that they're just like, OK, yeah, you can go here. And then they wonder why homeless people would rather have like some privacy than sleep. Right. And like the biggest problem like here in Dallas is is mainly an accessibility issue due to the development guidelines that were written decades ago and everyone's just decided this is the way we have to develop things in Dallas. Mm-hmm. So like uh, because of zoning restraints and parking requirements, like there's lots of opportunities all over Dallas where you could add a lot of affordable units. But there's people who have like a a triplex or a fourplex, you know, that they're the landlord of. And there's plenty enough space where they could expand that to an eightplex and like reduce rents across the board because they would make more units in their in their piece of land. But because mm-hmm. of the parking requirements that Dallas puts on any of those developments, they have to maintain like over half of the property just for parking lot space. And like like those types of things mean that now you have a fourplex instead of an eightplex and all of those rents are going to be twice as much as they would be if you had an eightplex and didn't have the crazy parking requirements. So people are basically paying double rent so that they can park their car next to their house. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, it's just, but it's not like uh, that it, that's like some sort of isolated area that is for like all development. So like everywhere. So it's not like uh, everywhere you go, like if there's more than a single family unit, you're going to have to basically have a big naked parking lot next to whatever that living situation is, which takes up a lot of the space and then causes you to not be able to put as many units. And when you don't have as many units, then the prices go up. And so even though there are, you know, a few not like terrible landlords in the city that are very motivated to get affordable housing here, and try to alleviate those problems, they're essentially hamstrung by the developmental codes of the city, and people just aren't interested in changing that stuff because it's like, I don't know, somebody had a good idea for why we did that back in 1955. Why would we question it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've, our, uh, or the mayor of LA is very well known for just taking money from developers and like building up downtown, which I love downtown. Like, it's it's a great place not because of the high rises like because of the you know local shops and everything but um the the apartment prices there were nuts like in in echo park i think there was a place that was 425 square feet didn't have a washer dryer in it that was 3300 a month and like that was the Jeez. most that was that was considered affordable housing in the area too. Like I think they did do affordable housing, but that means at most they're cutting half off the rent. So then you're paying what sixteen fifty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For like you, how how big of an apartment can you get in you know Dallas for sixteen fifty? Well, the I think the average two bedroom price for an apartment is close to two thousand dollars a month here now. Yeah, I mean I remember in Houston we. We're looking at places when we were first moving there, and I was like, $1,200? Like, are they insane? Yeah. And, you know, now it's probably 
Like if you want, I, I'm pretty sure if you want to get in Dallas proper, if you want to get something that is, uh, over a studio or one bedroom, you better be ready to pay 2000 a month. Yeah. And that's, and that's not uh, just apartments. That's also like the duplexes and the, you know, the townhomes and the little garage apartments that people rent out and all. It's not like, uh, oh, there's this one apartment market that is like crazy. But then there's this like other like rental home market or re- other rental property market that's like sane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all the same, you know, it's all the same deal. And, yeah, because... and. I always think back like uh, 2008 when the bubble burst and our, we lost our, our house, uh, we walked away from our house. We went and rented a duplex in far East Dallas and we were paying uh, $500 a month for the bottom nice. floor of a two-story house that was built like in 1918. And yeah, it was like window units and we had like a giant gas furnace thing that had been mounted on the wall for the heater and stuff. And it was really old and falling apart or whatever, but like $500 a month <laughs> and, <we> paid, <laughs> yeah. and I held on to that place for almost four years because I was like, good God, this is almost like living for free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's nuts. I don't know, man. I mean... Whatever. It's crazy because there's a ton of units available too. Like people aren't <laughs> moving right now, you know? So it's it's nuts that the price keeps going up. Um but Well, they're all all the people that are moving are leaving California and coming to Texas. Yeah, of course, right. Because uh <laughs> and, and they're all showing they're all showing up here and like uh, people are trying to like buy houses because they're like good Texans with good Texas money, and then all these Californians show up and are like what some Texas some Texans only offering you that much? I got an extra hundred thousand. How about that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How's that incentivization working? <laughs> but anyway, on to more fun news, I suppose. Do you feel Do you feel warmed up, Eric? Because you're you're about to really run run the rest of this podcast by yourself. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I will confess, this was my idea. I, I sent you this idea because I'd been interested in this the, um, ever since the beginning of the pandemic. Like before we even developed vaccines, there was this idea that there should be also an effort to develop some sort of antiviral medication um, that would be helpful to people, especially in like uh, immunocompromised groups or in higher risk groups, so that we could find a another avenue to take the pressure off hospitals and things like that beyond just vaccines. Because while vaccines are good, we've also noticed that uh, vaccines aren't necessarily designed to beat the next possible mutation or the next possible variant. And we also have realized that uh, politicization, uh, a word that I can't say right now, has uh, made it such that uh, people don't want to take the vaccine, even if it's for their own good. And so just having another, you know, potential weapon to reduce what is, I think, the sort of the the biggest um, hurdle to having any sort of 
functioning society in living with COVID is going to be the hospital system. Even if we get it down to where it's not killing people at, at an alarming rate, if we have it still where a lot of people are having to go to the hospital all the time with it and it's overwhelming that system, that's going to screw it up for everyone who needs to just have like a normal surgery for something else. You're going to have a lot of other side effects in the system of people who are having bad outcomes, not because directly because of COVID, but indirectly because of COVID, because they can't go get their their heart surgery or whatever else they might need. Yeah, like right now, California's trying to decide whether or not to uh, ban elective surgeries, which includes organ transplants. Right. So like, while we always talk about, oh man, like the deaths are terrible, there's a lot of preventable deaths happening, Oh man, the ignorance of people not wanting to get the vaccine is causing this this problem to be spread like a forest fire. Um, the real problem facing, I think, just society is maintaining a functioning, <laughs> even though it's a terrible healthcare system, <laughs> maintaining one that is at least has capacity and is functional to be able to take care of people who need care beyond just COVID care. And um, so having some kind of antiviral medication beyond vaccines that could dampen the effects of the people who are having the worst time with it so that they don't end up in the hospital would be very beneficial to having a functioning society, even if we're all going to be at odds with each other inside of that functioning society. <laughs> yeah. I mean, fewer people dying from something easily preventable is the most logical <laughs> like even if you're the most uh free market sort of capitalist mindset you can imagine that allowing people to gum up the works of any sort of system because of dumb decisions is uh you know not beneficial to keeping the flow of things going it really jacks up everything it's like seatbelt laws like yeah, it it only protects you yourself, but if you're going to end up taking up an ER bed at a 20 mile an hour, you know, driving off of the ledge of some like parking lot, then uh that's stupid, you know. Right. And there's a there's an analog to this with when it comes to AIDS and how AIDS was approached in America and we never developed like a vaccine for HIV even though it's virus and everything like that. But what we did develop was antiviral drugs for AIDS and HIV that reduced the severity of the types of um, conditions that people would have if they contracted HIV and if it would eventually become AIDS so that they would not end up being in the hospital for the last two years of their life on, you know, different fluids and plugged into the wall, uh, they, they could still live their life and they would not be uh, hamstringing the rest of the healthcare system. So there is like a precedent for doing this. And, and interestingly enough, some of the same uh, medications that were used in the early on antiviral attack on HIV are direct carryovers in parallel with this Plaxovid concept for, for COVID. Yeah, I mean, the the history of antivirals is kind of interesting. 
not that I looked up a ton of it uh, because there's so much more just biology mm-hmm. um, that I wanted to work through. But if you think about it, like most people, when they get sick, a lot of the times you're getting sick with a virus because it's it's easier to uh, transmit like bacteria you're only getting if there's I don't know it's like from gross stuff you know <laughs> like <laughs> um, or now antibiotic antibiotic resistance <laughs> right right but the the thing with bacteria um, and we spoke about this on episode 47 which was like 11 months ago um, antibiotics work by being there's the term called selective toxicity and this selective toxicity is how you also describe like say chemotherapy for cancer treatment the point is we're trying to be selectively toxic to uh whatever it is that's bad and trying to be less toxic to the healthy tissue chemotherapy it's a little bit more difficult because it's your human tissue continuing to grow and so you're needing to kill human tissue which means you're killing human tissue yeah it's a race Um, between killing yourself and killing the cancer (laughs) right um and then when you're talking about a bacteria or bacterium or whatever um you're specifically trying to target things that are different than humans and with uh, antibiotics like penicillin or whatever, they typically sort of attack like the cell wall that the bacteria has. Because most bacteria are very similar in structure. Maybe they have like different types of, you know, um, like they use additional RNA or something like that. Like they've got a different protein on the outside. But the way the bacteria work is they just multiply and release toxins and stuff and feed off of everything. They don't invade our cells. So you can attack those individual cells without attacking the human cells. It's kind of like, what's the company called? Monsanto created this like pesticide that they found is like there's like a really toxic chemical. And they added on like another chemical so that it doesn't bind to anything. Like it would be toxic for us to ingest. Mm-hmm. But we don't have a protein that separates those those two parts and makes the toxic part active. But caterpillars do, or like this type of pest, mm-hmm. and they have it in their gut. So whenever they eat this pesticide, it then activates the tox toxic stuff and kills them. Um, it's like that kind of thing. You're trying to find the thing that the bad part makes that we don't make so that you can kill it when it comes to viruses viruses i mean i personally it's a debate in biology but i personally don't consider viruses living um Mm -hmm. because they don't like feed their reproduction cycle you can compare it if you're trying to say they're living to like you know um like parasitic wasps or something like they have to you know infect a host in order to continue the life cycle that sort of works in their favor but otherwise they don't have any metabolic processes and when you don't have a metabolic process where you're like absorbing nutrients or whatever you can't accidentally absorb a toxin that's going to kill you like a drug so 
viruses needing to infect the human cell means that they're already inside of a human cell. So you can't just target a human cell. Um, then you need to figure out, well, what is the process that they go through and viruses, you know, they enter a cell, they release their genetic code that then is absorbed into straight into the human DNA or floats around or it's like an RNA. So it kind of hijacks the things that make proteins. It's essentially just giving the, the, like the roadmap, the, um, builder guide to like the Lego death star like thing. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at genetic material, say it's a DNA virus, well, we have DNA. Okay, well, if it's an RNA virus, well, our DNA gets coded into RNA to make proteins and stuff. Mm -hmm. So you can't just choose those molecules as something to attack. Because you'll attack yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's not easy to, like, exploit it um, in a way that doesn't kill humans. Because if you just decide, well, there's these two, you know... Uh, nucleic acids and I'm going to try and just keep it like vague on stuff because I don't want to get too caught up in the words and make it confusing but the nucleic acids are like the you know building blocks essentially of DNA like the actual parts that tell you which Lego piece to put where mm -hmm. those I mean the human genome has it's at least millions I can't I don't have it off the top of my head but I think there's like maybe a billion or something like individual ones of those so trying to find one that's unique to the virus that you could then exploit that is not going to be found in any human trait <laughs> because you also have to consider people with um all the genetic baggage uh, that every single human has over all right. of the evolution of the species <laughs> yeah and you know say there's somebody that has like a genetic disorder that then means, well, there's a different nucleic acid that's switched, and so that causes their, uh, you know, whatever, like their heart to be on the wrong side of them or, you know, something like that. Or um, their valves don't really operate well because they have this genetic mutation. Well, if that's the one that you're targeting, then you're targeting the heart valves in that person. Right, right. <laughs> so it's um, it's really, really tricky uh, to to figure it out. You know, well, and that's why, like in the vaccine development, we've talked about back even going back to the first episode, like the spike protein on on SARS-CoV-2. And that is what was targeted through the initial vaccine development. One, because it was the obvious sort of thing that was attaching the virus to the ACE2 cells. But also, it was sort of the quickest way to develop a vaccine if that might work, if you could somehow inhibit that spike protein from attaching. So the vaccine, the first round of vaccines was specifically targeting that one very specific spike protein on the virus, which is also why, as we've now had like, I think, 18 different mutations of the spike protein why the efficacy of the initial vaccines is not as good on the later variants because that spike protein has mutated 18 different times since the initial vaccine was developed. 
Yeah, and the the mutations too. Like whenever you have, let me pull up my handy dandy uh, DNA amino acid codon chart. Um, whenever you have a different mutation in something, it only sometimes takes one amino acid to be different for the, there to then be a different Lego piece that's put on there. And if you put a different Lego piece onto this protein, it's going to have an entirely different shape. And we've spoken about, you know, proteins and um, receptors and stuff. It fits like essentially a lock and key. There's some other components like charge, uh, you know, positive, negative, and that kind of aspect mm-hmm. to then turn the lock inside but it has to fit first and if it's a different shape then that means it doesn't fit which means the one that you got in the vaccine is not going to detect it at all right um so these different mutations are especially in an rna virus insanely easy a dna virus is a little bit more difficult because you've got two sides that you have to ha- you have to have like essentially kind of two mutations but an rna virus you only need one mutation because you only have one strand it's not like a parallel uh, railroad track so um there's been like some successful antiviral stuff in the past which i you know i knew that there weren't many antivirals but uh it i had no idea uh that tamiflu was an antiviral. Yeah, I didn't know that when you texted me either. I thought it was just a, uh, like a therapeutic. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I thought it was just, uh, cause I don't know. I probably get like the generic, uh, over the counter kind of not, it, you know, it probably has some name similar to Tamiflu, but it's mm-hmm. like essentially, you know, uh, just extra Advil and acetaminophen and whatever. Yeah. Um, but Tamiflu, was developed in a way that it's it is an antiviral where it's like the the flu virus um whenever it's built up inside of the cell like it's it gets the it's already infected a cell its genetic code tells it how to keep making new viruses those then move to the outside of the cell and kind of morph out like you're blowing a bubble Um, and the way that this flu virus works is it has two different proteins on the outside of the virus. One of them attaches to a cell and the other one cuts the attachment. And the way that it releases is you have it attached to the cell and then this other protein cuts it so that it can go float off and infect new cells. Mm -hmm. Um, the way Tamiflu works, so this is one way that it could exploit it, humans don't have that protein that cuts the connection. Ah. So Tamiflu literally just goes and binds to the knife and makes it dull so that it cannot release the virus and it just stays attached to that infected cell. And since we don't have that protein, it doesn't mess up any of our other binding of any of our other cells in our body. To <laughs> right, else. right. Our lungs don't suddenly like liquefy and fall out of our ass (laughs) (laughs) yes which is worst case scenario (laughs) 
Um, but, <laughs> like, but but these are like the. That's why you got to test these antiviral drugs. You never know if you accidentally <laughs> put a string of chemicals together with these different bonding compounds that uh, might actually be toxic to the, you know, the cohesive nature of your organs. <laughs> right. But that's the other thing with with these like antivirals because viruses are so tiny. You have to have very small molecules. I mean, small molecule drugs. Yeah, that was the next my big my big next question for you is what is a small molecule drug? So you've got drugs that are like these, you know, massive, um, almost like enzyme-looking things that are just a huge, just string of letters and numbers that forms this massive whatever that helps uh, facilitate, you know protein production or antibodies or you know whatever um then you have these micro ones like i I believe penicillin is considered one because it's so tiny it's it's i don't know the exact like definition of however many elements are in it like individual atoms but in order to attach to like this protein on a flu virus uh it's got to be insanely small because it's it's just a cap on the end of this thing. Like, it's literally just mm-hmm. like a, a, I don't know, whenever you buy a new knife and it's got like the little rubber thing on the edge. Yeah. Like, it's it's got to be something so small. And whenever you have something so small, you run into the da- the danger of it then being able to like, well, can it go through blood vessels? And if so, does that mean it can go through your blood brain barrier and jack up you know serotonin levels or something like that yeah yeah yeah. and that's um, the the question when like women are pregnant too can it like pass mm-hmm. through that that barrier into the uterus and get to the embryo and all that type of stuff why a lot of pregnant women are prevented from taking these types of medications right and a lot of the medications are also uh activated like in the liver because you eat something then it's absorbed into your bloodstream that then goes to your liver and gets process there and filtered and everything um so you've got like all of these different areas that you have to make sure this small molecule doesn't bind on or just gum up the works of all this stuff um, which is why it it's fairly important to do like living trials like in you know at least rats uh or something or even human they they did it on Paxlovid they already did the big human right, trial yeah. one of like 2000 participants and another of like 5000 so yeah it's i mean it's pretty nuts um that they were able to do it so fast of course i would uh like how pissed would you be if you uh die because <laughs> like, you're on the placebo, you the placebo side yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's for science eh? you you died helping confirm confirm a result <laughs> listen buddy i want to live so just give me the one that's gonna have me live <laughs> <laughs> i know like that's all that was always the question like uh when i did my uh clinical trial for my eyes you know they put like an experimental uh, CNTF cell inside of one of my eyes to see if it would slow the degeneration of my rod and cone cells. And then they put a placebo in the other. So when I had surgery, they had to, they cut both my eyes open, like both my eyeballs were slit open. And so I had to do the recovery the same on both eyes. And so like for the two years in the study, I'm always like, man, why couldn't they just give me the, give it to me in both the eyes? Then, then, then it'd be fine. 
so like now I have like my right eye is like holding on a lot better than my left eye because my right eye got the actual cell treatment and my left eye was the placebo one, the control, and my left eye is like useless. It's almost totally dark, like nothing. <laughs> Are you I'm, at least happy that they you got both instead of like it being you getting yeah I, I was i wasn't or... i wasn't double placebo i was at least a, i was at least a 50 50 guy so you yeah. know i guess i can look at it that way and be the optimist of the situation <laughs> <laughs> and glass is literally half full yeah exactly <laughs> but yeah i can't imagine like when i was reading the results of that trial um and the you know there were like 2200 people that were given the active antiviral of paxlovid and what was it like eight ended up in the hospital, but no die, no deaths. And uh, then, yeah, I got the numbers down below. And then the, the control group, it was more ended up in the hospital and something like nine died because they were all just on the placebo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, this one's crazy. The, before we even get like jump all the way into it, there's, there was another COVID antiviral that, mm-hmm was used before this the remdesivir yeah remdesivir um but that one it 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 was kind of a weird one and the debate over it is i think kind of stupid but they they said that it in studies proved it shortened um recovery time of patients that were already recovering from covid um essentially they did they gave a total of 1,062 patients, a randomization, half got a placebo, half got the actual drug. Um, and they were given it for 10 days. And essentially it was like the data proved if the person was starting to get worse, then they just stayed worse. And if they were starting to get better, it made it quicker for them to get out of the hospital. Um, but it was, it was kind of, I don't know. Like people were saying that it was essentially useless to give. I don't know. I, I <laughs> well, I, I, the thing that I saw was that the major improvement case was you basically had to start taking it almost before you knew that you were infected. Okay. Like if you waited too long to start the treatment, it was virtually it didn't do anything for you. And so the problem was is how can you if you only have like. 12 hours between like infection and starting the course of treatment in order for it to be an effective treatment. How necessarily effective is that in the general population who might not might feel symptoms, then they might go 24 hours later to get a test. Then they get those results two days after that. So by the time where they would get prescribed this stuff, they're already on the, the back end of having any kind of good effect from it. Um, so then you had like doctors in situations where they were like kind of preemptively prescribing it like, Hey, you are, you have high risk and we don't know if, we don't know if you're, we don't have your test result yet, but just start this because you're a high risk person. And if you, if you do have it, you, the prognosis is not good. So I think that was the majority of the cases where people were getting it prescribed was like, they were specifically high risk because of some other comorbidity. And they were getting it early on before maybe they even knew like how bad their case of COVID was or if they were even infected. Yeah. So it's, I mean, that one you can certainly understand like a supply issue of when and how do you even give it. 
And then you got the anti-mask people who are screaming that they want it, and they're like, "No, you're, <laughs> you're dying, buddy." Like, this is... well, well, can't you just give me the vaccine now? <laughs> just the scientific literacy in this country is amazing. Um, so the Paxlovid, uh, I don't know. I'll I'll, I'll just run through my notes because I think it's in fairly kind of good order. Okay. Um, stop me if you want to talk. Uh, this will be like the very first episode all over again. <laughs> um, so it's made up of two different tablets. Uh, you have Nerma Trevlivir. I don't know how to say it either. It's like Norse gods. Yeah. Like, um, why Why are there so many V's and R's next to each other in all these names? <laughs> like they're all I mean, named by some Russian. <laughs> <laughs> I understand the last three V-I-R as in virus, <laughs> but come on. <laughs> um, and then Ritonavir. Um, and that's, that's the, one, the other tablet. And that's the one that you was is also a previous HIV medication. Right. Um, so that one... We'll it's not specifically. It's not specifically an antiviral, but it is uh, right. a companion. The it, it's a companion, and the thing that's like also really important about it when it comes to HIV is the way that they treat HIV is you get just, I mean, like a handful of pills to take all the time, mm-hmm. and uh, the ritonavir is one that's. It doesn't act on the virus, but what it does is it prolongs the, uh, or it's it staves off the breakdown of antiviral medications. So that's the liver. other thing. It, it, right. it basically suspends your liver's operation of metabolizing those drugs at the rate it normally would. Right. Um, which now makes me wonder how somebody with HIV and like some sort of hepatitis deal right with that that's that. that's the problem is if you have it if this thing is designed for people with comorbidities right <laughs> then you're probably taking a lot of other medications for whatever those comorbidities are that your liver is having to do a lot of work to metabolize mm-hmm. and if for some reason you start to take a drug that now prevents your liver from metabolizing those drugs that could be toxic to you because if those other drugs stay in your system too long they might kill you right <laughs> so this <laughs> the, having to take this as part of the paxlovid course could potentially eliminate its uh, availability to a lot of people that it sh- potentially should be targeting because they have their comorbidities actually make them take medications that this is actually going to conflict with right and I don't know exactly what ritonavir does for HIV medications, but the problem with the Paxlovid, the COVID pill, is if you take it and you have untreated or undetected, undiagnosed HIV, then you could develop um, antiviral resistant mm-hmm. HIV so that whenever you do discover it, it's going to... Like the treatment's not going to work. Not going to work. Yeah. Same same thing as antibiotic resistance. There is yeah, exactly. antiviral medication resistance too, as if it's too if it's used too widely and too prevalently. Yeah, I mean we spoke about this on with antibiotics, but this is the same thing. Like, if you're prescribed Tamiflu, you have to take the full course because mm-hmm. 
you could then uh, aid in the development of an antiviral Tamiflu resistant <laughs> yeah, flu mutant virus. super flu because I didn't want to take all my pills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the the other tablet, the non HIV um, originated tablet, this is the one that's like, I don't know. There's a lot of science going on with it. Um, yes, this is the one I sent you the making of this that was just nothing but chemistry charts. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I read it. You can explain it to me later. <laughs> the This one is really um, pretty interesting. So what it does is it inhibits the uh, SARS-CoV-2 protein um, from replicating. So how it does this, the, the COVID virus when it attaches to like an ACE2 receptor it is then absorbed into the body and it immediately releases some genetic information that then gets uh, cut at specific segments and is sent down to the area where it then makes more RNA and more proteins and then builds new viruses mm-hmm um, the the cutting aspect of it is where this this chemistry starts working. So it has this straight line of genetic material, and the way that um, it gets cut means that there's a protein that floats around that's part of the virus, and that protein then reads along. It's just going, you know, like, a T C G G T G T T and mm-hmm. whatever. Whenever it hits a three-letter combination that it recognizes that it literally fits like a lock and key to, it then snaps off the genetic material right there. It's its own CRISPR. Yeah. That's that's like, you know, how CRISPR That's exactly how CRISPR works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um so they it it's going along and uh snaps it off blah blah blah. So the thing with this drug that they found is um the the big proteins that it creates are uh I'm going to read some from like these papers and stuff so I can get it into my head then I'll try to explain things. Yeah, it's cool. Um the resulting polyproteins uh, I'll just call them A and AB, um, are co-translated and co-translationally uh, translationally processed into the individual non-structural proteins that form viral replication and transcription complex. So that big thing uh, is cut. It's, it's actually a protein. It's not genetic material. My apologies. <laughs> um, but the, the protein is cut at a specific section. The thing... With genetic material, as you have three amino acids, that codes for one. I'm sorry, you have three nucleic acids, that codes for one amino acid. There you go. Yeah. That's that's the Lego piece. So this thing is looking for the exact Lego piece that it wants to break off. So okay. I can correct my earlier se- statement. Um, whenever it breaks that off, then that goes and you know codes for other stuff. So the the genome encodes for these two polyproteins. The polyproteins are cleaved by a, a critical 
It's called a protease. So that's just an enzyme that cuts the protein. I kept reading that as protease. <laughs> I didn't know how to my in my in my head. I didn't know how to uh, how to pronounce it. I kind of like protease better, but oh, it's yeah. okay. <laughs> Sorry. Well, yeah. The whenever you've got an enzyme, it's typically an ASE and ACE, and then whenever you have a sugar, it's OSE. Okay. So glucose is cut by glucase. You could imagine. Okay. So okay. that's kind of the. Um, but yeah, you can trust me. In biology, people pronounce these things however they want, <laughs> and they're very smug about it. So, um, but the the protease cuts at eleven different sites to make this big protein into shorter things. So it's got twelve different segments floating around. Um, <clears throat> all of those are important to the viral replication. The coronavirus uh, protease is a three domain cysteine protease that fit features a cysteine histine catalytic dyad located in the cleft between domains one and two now that means this protease has a very important section like like an active section of it because a lot of protein is just kind of scaffolding mm-hmm. but this is like the the you could think of it as like the door okay um it has two specific amino acids. It has two specific Lego pieces right here that are unique to it that really do a lot of the action. Um, several common features are shared among the protease uh, substrates, the, the individual pieces, including the presence of a, a glutamine, which resides at P1. So... Shout out to the ticket. Um, <laughs> so this glutamine, let's see. The the glutamine is at a specific point. Um, and the cysteine protease cuts at that glutamine. Mm-hmm. So there's this, this blue Lego piece that this other thing comes along and cuts. There's no known human... Um, like scissors that cuts at a blue Lego piece in any of our proteins. Okay. So this would be unique just to the virus. So it would be the place to attack if you had an antiviral pill because you know you couldn't hurt the humans <laughs> that, that you're using it inside of. Right. So that's that's literally like the science that's going on is they found one individual Lego piece that they didn't find in any human protein and that means every other Lego piece they found is in human proteins. So <laughs> right. that's, that's how unique this is. Um, of course, they could develop others. That's that's just a little hy- hyperbole. Well, um, they, well, in in the making of it, they did talk about how those oh, yeah. specific end pieces, like it was a lot of trial and error. They had one that just wouldn't hold up, and they had to come up with different really figure out what that last little binding spot was going to be in order to be able to make the thing work. Right. Hello there, fair listener. This is Eric from the future. I realized I forgot to mention exactly how the Paxlovid drug inhibits the the protease. So essentially the uh, neurotrevlovir aspect of it, that micromolecule, um, the section in the protein that was discovered that 
we don't have in our human DNA. So the part of the protein that cuts apart the big protein from COVID, um, we don't have that enzyme that cuts any of our proteins apart. So what this drug does is it literally just goes into that active site that uh, would be the scissors essentially to cut the protein in half and blocks it. So just by going in there and binding it, it's essentially like, you know, uh, putting super glue in the keyhole. Okay, now back to whatever we were talking about. So, <clears throat> man, just love love when weather goes up and down in temperature. <laughs> it does wonders for my throat. Seasons. <laughs> but the thing about this, and I don't know if everyone recalls it. You certainly re- uh, heard about it in probably in high school biology, if you're listening to this. Um. Do you remember in 2003 when they finished mapping the human genome? <laughs> yeah, such big news. The, you know, cuz it started under the Clinton administration. And mm-hmm. so we were like, "Oh, look, they finally completed it under George Bush. Hope he does. I wonder if he's going to take the credit." Yeah, he immediately sent it to Iraq or wherever. <laughs> um but <laughs> the mapping of the human genome, like this is exactly why that was so important. Because instead of needing to do these trial and errors and killing humans <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, with these random drugs. We no longer have to just go to it. the insane asylum or the orphanage and just give a bunch of trial drugs to see how many orphans are killed. <laughs> right, exactly. The, the polio vaccine, right? Isn't that yeah, how they... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this this is like the exact reason why. Because uh, I've got it in my notes. I tweeted it out yesterday. But that chart where you look at the RNA uh, amino acids and which protein it makes, like which amino acid, sorry. God, you look at the nucleic acids and you- There you go. Gives you the amino acid. <laughs> <laughs> I swear I studied this. Like, <laughs> um, it That thing is why it's so important because you can- you can just look at this full string. You can do, you can control F and yeah. find where one of these exists. And whenever you get that zero over zero, that means it doesn't exist in the human genome. Um, so it's really like quite a marvel that they were able to find it because I think the person, like the tweet you originally shared, uh, the guy is saying this is probably the fastest discovery to like use of any drug any small molecule drug ever yeah yeah that, and um like the then we get to like okay so we talked about how it worked in the trial and so it had like an 89% reduction in severe hospitalization and uh since no one died in the clinical trial, I guess a hundred percent reduction in death over the control <laughs> since right. like uh, no one died who was on that versus the control group. Um, and the, the big question now is um, how the heck do we get this as a useful tool available to doctors so that they can give it to patients so that it could actually make a difference in the fight we're in now because this this was being developed last year and the news about its development and its FDA approval came like the same week that Omicron was 
was identified. <laughs> so it's not like this was developed with Omicron in mind or something like that. Um, or even with like, oh man, the Omicron wave is happening. We better come up with an antiviral solution. This was like thought about before. Mm -hmm. And so now the idea is like, oh wow, we're in uh, a huge surge of cases right now because of Omicron. Is there a way we could use Paxlovid to stop this surge in Omicron? And um, the the short answer is no. There's not, there's not going to be a way that we can use it. Um, the long answer is, yeah, it's, uh, it's a supply chain issue, <laughs> but, but the more nuanced answer is it's incredibly hard to make these small molecule drugs, especially if you want to make them at a scale at which you would like the entire world to be able to utilize them. Um, there's not in reading about the methodology of the making of these drugs because of all of the different chemical compounds you need to acquire in order to synthesize them into this specific package. Um, you One, there's a restriction on like the size of the actual, you know, devices that they use to make these chemicals and, and bind them together. And when you're making a small molecule drug, you can't just make the pipe larger. You can't like open the diameter of the pipe to make it larger so you can increase the capacity or the volume at which the drug you're making. The pipe still has to stay that super small size in order to synthesize the small molecule that you are generating. Um, I mean, anybody who's like made pancakes in the morning knows if you use a much bigger bowl, you're trying to make more, it's going to take way more to make yeah. sure like the eggs and everything get mixed around. Like it's just, you're not having the things bump into each other that you need. Exactly. At that larger size. So you have to, instead of having like one huge plant make a huge amount of this stuff, you have to have all of these small plants run in parallel this very small manufacturing process, which means that you're going to have to get like all of the small plants that are able to do this pretty much all making it if you want to scale up to have enough doses to like be a global impactor. Because right now, between the time where they were approved for FDA approval at the beginning of December and the end of 2021, they were able to make uh, a handful of doses, like 20 or 200,000 or 20,000 or something like that. But the idea is that by the end of this year, by the end of 2022, they're not even going to be able to like get up to 100 million doses of this stuff, mm -hmm. even if they had full capacity of all of the all of the manufacturing capabilities that they could imagine. Um, it just, one, because it's a pill, the actual material is so much more that you have to make. You're, you're making, whereas like uh, a, a, a vaccine, you're talking about milligrams of a dose. A, the pill, you're talking about full, multiple three to five grams of a dose and so in order to make like enough to help people you're talking about making thousands and thousands of kilos of this stuff and that is just tough to manufacture because one you have all of these reagents and all of those come from different places all over the world and then when you get down to their like 
their base parts that where all those things are made of, most of those come from like China. A few come from India, but most come from China. And that's simply because the world has outsourced that stuff because in places like America and Europe, we don't like uh, smelly chemical plants and, you know, stinky smoke in the air to make to make all these compounds. And in those and in China, they uh, they're happy to have uh, unpaid labor <laughs> and we're happy to uh, to ride the benefit train off of their slave labor and uh, their continued, uh, you know, emitting of these terrible emissions through all these chemical plants that we won't tolerate over here, but we actually need them to make these medicines. So all that stuff has to be sourced. And when we're already having like the whole supply chain debacle that we're having, you're our... You're, all that stuff has to go through the same process that everything else has to go through. The chair you ordered from Ikea, the PS5 that you want to get, all of that stuff is it's still in the same bottleneck. At Those those base chemicals and reagents are in the same bottleneck as all of that other stuff. So that's the big hurdle. Because even if you wanted, like you're not, you're not going to get to maybe even 80 million doses in a year. And I don't know, like how long... <laughs> How, how many doses do you need to make in order to actually stem the tide? I'm sure some doses are going to be useful, and I'm sure there's going to be situations where it's going to actually save lives of people who are like in a hospitalization case, but I don't know if it's actually going to be the thing that is going to drive down the surge in hospitalizations that is causing that entire system to break down right all around us. That's the big concern. Yeah, it's the amount of chemicals that go into it too. It's kind of like making a, a PS5 or whatever. The things that go into it are, okay, you have plastic molding. Of course, you have semiconductors. We've spoken about that, but that's just like a few things that go into it. And then you got metal that needs to be shaped in a certain way. But all of those things means the the base like beginning is just like a raw material. It's it's two or three steps mm-hmm. to get to it. And that's the entire uh you know, the supply chain is so gummed up because those two or three steps are like not being met and not being shipped and all that kind of stuff. When you're looking at chemicals, it is such a process to get through these things like the the you know he was describing it in that that post like line by line of how you get from this chemical to this chemical with the chemical reaction and stuff Mm -hmm. and you know even if you've like recently taken organic chemistry it's still very complicated you don't cover that sort of like i can look at it and see what's going on but i don't I didn't study any of those sorts of chemicals. Um, so, right, and and all of the con- all of the like safety control, the purity control, right, at every single level is required in order to make the final result of Paxlovid a viable medicine. So, if you go back seventeen steps to like some of the the first chemicals that you're going to use to combine to make some of the next chemicals that you're going to need and you lose quality control in any of those steps because 
you're trying to rush it or, oh man, we need to skip this step because of a supply chain issue or whatever. If you lose quality control at any one of those steps, the final result is null. It's not going to be useful. You're not even going to be able to get there. So that's the other thing. You can't like uh, shortcut this. There's not like a right. quick a, a quick way to just get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's... And the thing, like the chemicals that you need for that very first step to just making Paxlovid, those chemicals aren't readily available. You have to also manufacture those chemicals, which have their own plant and process. And then some of the reagents that you use in that process also have to be manufactured. Like the one um, that he described, and I changed the names of the chemicals to just A, B, C, so it's a little bit easier to follow. <laughs> um, but he was saying, and he's he's a guy that works on like micro molecule, mm-hmm. uh, what drugs and stuff. So he knows these things. And when he says, uh, when you look at a common reagent, even those can be trouble. There are a lot of A groups in the creation of Paxlovid. Uh, for example, they're shown just appearing at the starting materials. But A groups have to be put on generally with uh, Bach anhydride, which you could call B. Mm-hmm. So a longtime friend in the business tells him that under current conditions, it's not as simple as it looks. B is pretty much a commodity. It's used in a lot of stuff. But when you look closely at the supply chain, you can find that there are not as many original suppliers of it as there might have thought. And... There are, in fact, some supply problems on scale right now because making B, among other reagents, uh, requires C, and that's another commodity. Uh, I've used that stuff uh, every so often since the 1980s and never gave a moment's thought to where it comes from. But to make C, you need D and E, and it turns out that, of all things, there's a bottleneck at C because there's not enough E (laughs) <laughs> which is just sodium metal. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and that's produced in a brute force energy intensive electrolysis process from 1924 and there have been electricity problems at the plants that make that, sodium yeah, that metal. They can't make the, they can't do the electrolysis in order to make the sodium metal because they <laughs> It's like they they've got grid problems <laughs> to make to make sodium metal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they're on the ERCOT grid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where you can start to follow. It's it's five steps down just for something that you need to get like one of the first steps going in making the drug. Uh, so it's not like putting a PS5 together where, you know, well, the, the metal sheet uh, can't be bent because the screw that is specific to this machine is made from this metal in this country and they don't have the electricity to make that screw. Like that's how far back the problem goes. Right. And it's not a thing where it's not a thing where we can just do some like a world war two style, uh, manufacturing, uh, change in America where we're like, well, we'll just change all the car plants to make tanks and planes and then we'll win the war. It, mm-hmm. You can't just like uh, make an executive order that says, "Well, make all the chemical plants now have to make make the stuff for Paxlovid." That doesn't that doesn't solve the problem. You you could force like every every plant in America that 
does any kind of chemical compounds to only focus on Paxlovid, and that does not solve any of these issues. These issues that are downstream of it, in order to make it happen. Um, so, as much as we'd like to like say, hey, it's a cool medicine that exists. Let's just get the old American willpower behind this thing, and we'll save everyone's life. We'll get seven billion doses by by the summer. It's 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 absolutely impossible and it has nothing to do with ingenuity or uh, or steadfastness or your ambition or your desire to save lives or anything it is actual practical problems with commodities <laughs> and yeah. not having enough of them and not having the ability to control the quality of the development at a massive scale you can only control the quality of the development of these things at a smaller scale and that's just means that it's going to take a long time to develop enough drugs in order to affect the big, big portion of the population. Yeah. I mean, the, and you have Pfizer that, uh, that makes Paxlovid, uh, agree to a licensing agreement texted you and Justin this yesterday yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that they, they seem to announce their licensing agreement that they would allow uh, the drug to be manufactured widely, especially for low and middle income countries, uh, while at the same time saying that they were not going to offer up their vaccine formula. So it's right, but we'll sell it at a discount to them. Well, yeah, you're not going to prevent the disease; you're only going to treat the disease. Um, and they said that they'll forego any royalties or profit in low income countries. As long as COVID is a public health emergency, meanwhile, they're lobbying for it to no longer be classified as a public health emergency. Even in the UK, where you can get seven free tests just by walking into a CVS, they're like debating in these next couple of weeks whether or not to just stop that because mm -hmm. they're like, well, we're going to have at least six more years of COVID. So don't want to be paying for people to know whether or not they have it. So, well, you know, if you if you know how many people in, are infected, then you might have to do something. Yeah. Well, they've been doing uh, nothing. So, <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, you know, I think in the in the grander scheme, this is a good example of we're all frustrated and we're all screaming, "Do something already!" Especially because of yeah. the frustration that we've had overseeing the incompetence at every stage, going back two years, like. We, we all knew back in February 2020 that not enough stuff was being done. Like, we talked about it on the first episode of this podcast. Um, but just at this point, being so fr frustrated and screaming, do something, the answer is people are doing stuff, but nothing is going to be some sort of uh, FDR-style great, answered that solves all the problems in like one day type of thing this is going to be with us for a long time um i had this conversation over the break with uh with jake and we were just talking about man you know everybody getting sick with omicron and stuff and there was a time at the beginning of this where we all there might have been the human will in order to actually nip it in the bud if we had done certain things at the very beginning and take been very serious about locking down and all of that type of stuff. But I think we all need to kind of get comfortable with the idea that that ship has sailed. <laughs> yeah. 
And we're living now in just a mitigation phase. And that's just the way that we're going to be living probably for the rest of our lives. And the great hope is that we come up with enough therapeutics, antiviral solutions, continue to develop vaccines that, you know, counteract the mutations of the virus. And we just keep our fingers crossed that it doesn't mutate into something that will actually kill all human beings and we can't stop it. Um, because there's not going to be a moment where the world is 100% vaccinated. There's not going to be a moment where I, I just don't see an eradication point. I, I think that it's if as long as it spreads the way that it spreads, even if the severity comes down, like it's still going to spread. It's still going to be a problem with people who have comorbidities or or other health issues. Um, it's definitely a problem for all the kids now who still can't get vaccinated. Um, right. So it's more of a. I, I, I don't think that the idea of zero covid or the this idea that there's a way now uh, that we can turn back the clock and, and get get this fire contained. I really just don't think it's possible anymore. But even though it's at this level of systemic failure of not containing it and not not systemically doing things to at least aid in the, you know, uh, lessening severity or Right, instead of exacerbating it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, doesn't mean, you know, this is not like an individual failing on people, right. but you also individually do not have to also be promoting the virus. <laughs> right, know? right, right. You, there are still plenty of things people can do to at least help. And that's, um, it's disheartening whenever people, you know, complain about wearing a mask because they're already vaccinated. It's like, no, that's wearing a mask is extremely simple to do. Um, so why don't you just do it and quit crying about it? Right. It's not it, that's not the inconvenience. And I think the thing is, is like if if anyone really wanted a future of not wearing masks, then we should have taken it a lot more seriously in the spring of 2020. Yeah. But now we decided not to take it seriously and we decided to like have half the country fight over it. And so, yeah, just get used to masks. That's the way it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we decided to be used to masks when we didn't take it seriously two years ago. <laughs> when you look at like the chart, too, of COVID cases all time, the beginning of the pandemic, it's flat now <laughs> because yeah. of how many cases there are. Um, so just, you know, it's not difficult to just try and have some, I don't know. I, if you were somebody who is just dying to kill somebody, like you're, you know, a gun nut or something, then I can understand not wanting to wear a mask, but I don't think most people want to, you know, it's because you're not seeing the person you're killing mm -hmm. is why people are anti-mask. Like, and honestly, just have a little bit of a moral compunction about yourself to not want to try and help kill other people. Yeah, and I think there's also the uh, back to the old personal responsibility thing uh, and individual liberty of Americans. Like we were, there's a lot of people that really do have empathy and are like concerned about the well-being of others, but they were also told at the beginning of this whole deal 
Like, we all need to make some sacrifices. We all need to stay home for six months. We're all going to, you know, avoid seeing our family for a year. We're going to keep our kids out of school. We're going to do these things. And that's going to, we'll all just have to bear it for a bit. But once, then we'll get to the other side and it'll all be fine. And the other side just hasn't got here yet. (laughs) And so there's a lot of people who feel like they did they did. They went above and beyond their personal responsibility. They got both vaccines as soon as they could. They got boosted as soon as they could. They wore a mask for 18 months. And now I understand the, um, the emotional angst of now I feel of the people that are like, well, now me wearing a mask in public, it's not a personal responsibility issue for me anymore. This is me having to wear this is because a bunch of other people didn't hold up their end of the bargain. And that pisses me off. And so I'm not going to wear it because I don't give a fuck about the other people that didn't hold up their end of the bargain. And so I, I can I can sympathize with that sort of that emotional anger out of it. I can also rationalize myself above that in order to be like, OK, yeah, I get that feeling, but let's let's. Let's be logical about that. Let's be logical about it and and behave accordingly because we still don't want to kill other people. But I do understand that sort of emotional imperative of kind of being like, I did this for two years. Now I'm just giving you the double bird because I don't really care if you live anymore. And that's again, that is the unintended consequence downside of not doing enough at the beginning is now people there is a limit on tolerance of of other people's ignorance and i think a lot of people are beyond their point of being able to tolerate other people's ignorance right so that's where i come down on saying that the the government isn't doing anything cuz they're not right not alleviating that frustration in any way right um, and so and so instead of instead of there being like a higher up level of taking responsibility for those things the responsibility, like we've talked about, keeps getting kicked down to the lowest common denominator. And now it's like, oh, teachers are bad people because they don't want to keep kids in, in class. Well, they're not bad people. They also don't want to kill the children. The children can't right. get vaccinated. They also don't want the children to end up killing their grandparents because the children took a virus home that kills their grandparents. And that is not because teachers are selfish and lazy. It's because there isn't a structure of support set up at the higher levels that will support the the healthcare needs of the people beneath them. So and and so instead of actually having the conversation about how to embolden the social safety net and give people the basic needs that they need in this type of time of of a pandemic, we just quickly just say, "Oh my god, all the Chicago teachers are lazy pieces of shit." like what okay i guess that's what that's the lesson we should take teachers are lazy (laughs) stop saying that justin (laughs) Uh, speaking of nipping it in the bud though uh, i looked up the the weed uh paper ah yes it's a good end that it it would um you know what is what is this uh forbes article title says Study finds cannabis compounds prevent infection by coronavirus. Um, I, I looked into the paper, and uh, not only is it 
written by um or i'm sorry it's published in journal of natural products which is you know one of the top journals in the country. <laughs> Sounds like some homeopathic bullshit to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no way. Um, it is also, the study was conducted by like the, I think it's called like the Hemp Innovation Institution or something. So I, I they, those sound like good people. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to besmirch the Hemp Innovation Society. <laughs> it sounds like a groovy, a groovy center. It's at Oregon State, but come on. <laughs> um the the problem so they they found uh cbda and cbga two of like the cannabidiol acids can bind to the spike protein um but as i was saying <laughs> with uh with you and justin uh to have it keep you from being infected at all means you would then need to have the cbd which i don't believe is activated until it goes through the liver um coating the inside of your lungs <laughs> so that <laughs> it touches the covid before it touches your cells um and i don't think that's very healthy for oxygen exchange <laughs> or you need it so you need to take it in such high quantities that it is so actively available in your bloodstream <laughs> To bind to the spike protein. You just get yeah. You get the virus stoned. You 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 just hot box the virus inside your body. You got to smoke yeah. so much that the virus is just like fuck, man. I don't even want to get it. <laughs> oh, infect what, man? <laughs> <laughs> the the other thing too with the paper um, is in their like initial thing they they had these human cells um, which are also like lung cancer cells and I didn't read. The paper super in depth uh, because of this, but I don't know why they're using lung cancer cells instead of healthy human cells. But whatever. Maybe they um, were starting. Maybe the initial research was about uh, weed and lung cancer, and then they found like oh, this yeah, yeah. cool like side side channel. Hey, let's, it also stops COVID. <laughs> yeah, I mean it could be. It's it's just combination of research but they infected these cells in a plate with covid and then gave them different treatments uh including the cbd and stuff um, and then like some other treatments uh, to see how well they reduced the infection in the cell um totally missing from this part was the control <laughs> showing that they even know how to infect a cell <laughs> so when they show you like look it doesn't doesn't have covid anymore <laughs> We, like, we, we, had a, we had a squirt COVID? bottle with some COVID in it. We squirted it on these cells. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't grow. <laughs> didn't, didn't infect them. So uh, that's, that was a big red flag uh, for me. Uh, and then they also just have anecdotal evidence um, for like people in hospitals who have been smoking at least CBD and said that they recovered faster, which mm. it's like. Well. I, I told you, very strong. anecdotally, from my personal experience, I have never had COVID, and I've smoked every day since before the virus was even invented in that lab in China. So, so I think you knew this was coming. Yeah, I, I was preparing a long time ago. Um, I'm, I was kind of like, uh, kind of like FDR, where I had to act surprised that Pearl Harbor happened. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're like, you're high, like, 
stuffing thing. And, and everyone mattress. was like, man, that speech was so good. It seems like he must have written it like a week before it happened. And, there, and he was like, no, no, I just came up with I came up with all that off the top of my head. <laughs> There's been no communication back <laughs> I, and forth. I, prom- I promise I promise that uh, Winston Churchill didn't give me a heads up. <laughs> oh, Man. yeah. I don't know. That's that's a conspiracy theory about Pearl Harbor, just to end the podcast. <laughs> it's a well-documented conspiracy theory. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't think we solved anything, but I think I did learn some more about uh, organic chemistry and biology. So thank you, Eric. Yeah. I hope we're uh, the one podcast that, I mean, we've not received any feedback that people hate us talking about COVID. Every other podcast is like, I know people don't like that we talk about it. It's like, well, if somebody emailed me, maybe <laughs> I would hear something. But well, I mean, well, at least we're talking about it in like the the very you know raw chemical compound you know approach approach to COVID, and we're not just here talking about Doctor Fauci and Rand Paul or some bullshit. Right. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I saw somebody try to sick uh, K-pop fans on Rand Paul the other day. <laughs> By saying that he called some K-pop uh, idol ugly. And no. A K-pop person just responded, you're both ugly. <laughs> not, not understanding they were trying to pit them against him. Uh. <laughs> oh, well. Until next week. Good job, Eric. Bye.